Hi everyone, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice. And on this bonus episode, we remember Justice John Paul Stevens, who died on July 16th, 2019, at the age of 99. Justice Stevens was such an interesting figure as a Supreme Court justice. He was appointed by President Gerald Ford, as probably many of you know, uh, back in the 70s. He was known as a conservative bedrock Midwesterner and uh, then emerged very late in his career labeled the liberal leader of that wing of the court. He always disagreed with that. He said, I don't think I'm a liberal. I think I'm pretty conservative. From Justice Stevens' point of view, he often said, uh, I didn't really change terribly much. The court changed around me. And there was some real truth to that. Uh, Justice Stevens was appointed uh, uh, at a time when people were appointed because of their legal acumen and their uh, ability to be independent. And that is precisely what President Ford said about him both at the time he appointed him and for many years after. Ford was famous for saying that he was content uh, to allow history's judgment on him and his presidency to rest even entirely if necessary, on his appointment of Justice Stevens. How's that for an endorsement? And he was confirmed, Justice Stevens was, 98 to 0 after five minutes of uh, uh, congressional debate. Uh, We just don't have this anymore, of course. Beginning with the Reagan administration in the 1980s, the idea was to load the courts with young people who had predictable ideologies. The idea was the more people you put on the courts for longer periods of time with predictable ideologies to one side, and on the Reagan administration's uh, watch, that would have been very conservative folks, the, the longer your influence will be. And for Justice Stevens, it was all about being independent and being a kind of a skeptic. That's what he viewed as his watchword. He would always say, you know, I don't really have a judicial philosophy. Um, I look for things that make sense. I look to respect precedent. I look to decide cases narrowly and practically. And I think if you do that, you come out right most of the time. Uh, He also was willing to change his mind. So while he was uh, a conservative in his own mind, uh, he was also so independent that he would uh, sometimes reconsider long-held positions. Uh, One of the ones that stands out is that he had supported the death penalty coming to the Supreme Court and as a court of appeals judge before that. And he always uh, he, he never really voted to challenge it. But in 2008, two years before he went off the court. Uh, he famously announced a change of mind, and he announced he would no longer support it. Uh, Now, as long as it was the law, that was one thing. You had to follow the law, but for him, as a Supreme Court justice, he found it no longer justified under the Eighth Amendment. So what do you make of this? He's conservative. The court changes around him, but he's strongly independent. Justice Stevens served on the Supreme Court until 2010 when he retired at the age of 90. But he did not retire from public life. He kept writing. He published books. I have one at my bedside called Six Amendments, I think that's the title, uh, in which he proposes uh, things like repealing the Second Amendment, a hardly uncontroversial set of assertions in that chapter. 
Um, and he regularly gave speeches, and he wrote articles, and he was just a really active guy. He continued playing tennis until he physically couldn't do it anymore. Uh, he was just one of these people who had, who lasted and had a lasting impact. He was always active and always willing to share his thoughts. He was never caustic. He was never mean, uh, but you knew where he stood. Uh, I read today that he had filed more dissents than any other modern justice and more separate concurring opinions too. And that's a remarkable thing. He seemed to think that he had an obligation not just to go along and to get along and form the majority and sign somebody else's work, but so often to state his own opinion. And some of those opinions have really turned out to be ones that people turn to over and over. So uh, let me just end this by giving you uh, one little piece uh, from my own experience. Uh, You know that I am a law professor. I teach criminal law and criminal procedure, criminal procedure being this sort of search and seizure law, Miranda, things like that. And I thought what I'd like to share with you is uh, something that I use uh, from Justice Stevens every year in my criminal procedure class. One of the uh, bedrock issues when you teach search and seizure is the issue of probable cause. What does that mean? It's in the Fourth Amendment. Uh, You need probable cause to get a warrant to do so many other things, but it's not defined. What does it mean? Uh, How much evidence do you need to equal probable cause to persuade a judge to give you a warrant? Now, for years and years, going back into the 1950s and 60s, there was a standard for this called the Aguilar-Spinelli test. And I won't bore you with all of that, but you had to get certain quanta of evidence on the veracity of the person giving you the information, the reliability of the person giving you the information. In other words, there were standards that had to be met uh, so that the judge could grant the warrant which would grant the officers authority to make an arrest with that warrant, to do a search with that warrant, to go into somebody's home with that warrant. So there was a system. In a case called Illinois versus Gates, decided by the Supreme Court in 1983, this changed. The state of Illinois, uh, uh, their case went up, and the Supreme Court overturned that system of clear rules, saying it was too inflexible, it was too opaque for people who were not lawyers to understand those rules, such as police officers making out applications for warrants, and for people who were not lawyers but who were court commissioners, who were empowered to give out warrants, and we do have those in many states, um, those people might not be able to understand it either. So the court changed the standard for probable cause to the totality of the circumstances. The, uh, the court was to, the, the reviewing judge was simply to look at all of the evidence, kind of put it together and ask, does it make common sense that a crime has been committed and this person was involved? In other words, a kind of much softer, almost standardless idea based on common sense and practical wisdom. Uh, and that seemed to really resonate with a lot of the justices. They got the majority, um, those who signed on, uh, and also with a lot of people, and not least in law enforcement. 
uh, they like the idea of a much more flexible, easy-to-meet standard. And that is historically how it has turned out. It's much easier to get a warrant, much harder to overturn a warrant than it used to be. Now, what I want to point to here are some facts about the case and then to tell you what Justice Stevens did with it, because he dissented. He did not like this new approach. The facts of the case were, this was pretty simple, the police in a small suburban area outside of Chicago received an anonymous letter. And the letter said that basically these two people, Lance and Susie Gates, they were making their money selling marijuana. They had a lot of marijuana in their house, and they would go down to Florida uh, about once a month to resupply themselves. And it described this whole way that they did it, how they used the car, who flew down there first, and the other one flew down and drove back, all kinds of detail, and there would be pot found in the house, so on and so on and so on. So the police officer who got this anonymous letter went ahead, did some checking, and certain things did check out in the letter. And from that, the officer uh, set up surveillance uh, of the couple, uh, surveillance of the hotel they were supposed to go to in Florida, all kinds of other things. And when the couple drove back to their home in that small suburban area outside Chicago, the police were waiting with the warrant to arrest them, search their car, search their home, and bingo, they found all the drugs in the car. Okay, so the Supreme Court majority says this kind of information, this is enough. Uh, It gives adequate basis to describe probable cause for the police, and the judge was right to give the warrant based on that kind of practical, common-sense approach. If it had been under the old standard that required information uh, outlining the reliability of the person who gave the police the information, since it was an anonymous informant, nobody would know how reliable the person was. Nobody would know the basis for this information. It could have all just been made up so it wouldn't it would have failed the prior test but under the new probable cause test that was much looser much more uh, common wisdom oriented it was enough justice stevens did not like this as i said but he used it as an occasion to not just say i don't like this and i disagree and i dissent but to teach an important lesson about how we look at probable cause and i use his paragraph in his dissent Uh, outlining this, to teach my own students. Uh, And it goes, uh, not his paragraph, but the lesson goes something like this. If police get a warrant and they they convince the judge that they, they have probable cause and they should get a warrant, okay, very good. So the judge gives them the warrant and off they go and they find the drugs, guns, money, whatever it is they were searching for. The stuff they found doesn't count when we look back and we ask, was there probable cause? The things that resulted from the search do not count. And this is an important and sometimes difficult lesson to get across to law students and to people in general. Once the stuff is found, everybody kind of reacts like, well, they were guilty. Of course, we're going to get the evidence. Of course, there's no question about it now. But Justice Stevens says, no, not true. You only consider what the police know and tell the judge at the time they are applying for the warrant. Nothing that happens after that 
gets considered. If they hit the jackpot and find all this great evidence, that doesn't matter in the calculation of whether the judge was right to grant the warrant in the first place. In other words, and this is how I characterize it to my students, it's kind of at the moment that the police make the determination and serve the warrant, or they talk to the judge, we, it's like freezing the film when you review a sporting event. It's right then, and that's where you look at the evidence. Nothing that comes after that counts. So here was Justice Stevens on that concept. Quoting here, Of course, the activities in this case did not stop when the magistrate issued the warrant. The Gateses drove all night to Bloomingdale, the town in Illinois, The officers searched the car and found 400 pounds of marijuana, and they searched the house. However, none of these subsequent events may be considered in evaluating the warrant, and the search of the house was legal only if the warrant was valid. I cannot accept the court's casual conclusion that before the Gates arrived in Bloomingdale, there was probable cause to justify a valid entry and search of a private home. No one knows who the informant in the case was or what motivated him uh, or her to write the note. That's Justice Stevens on probable cause. All right. He's pragmatic. He's, He's not casual when it comes to facts. He's observant and he wants people to know, even if there's a new standard here, we're going to use some of the same rules apply. The things that are found later don't count. I call that the Justice Stevens freeze-frame analysis when I talk to my students. So, Justice Stevens, I want to thank you for that and so many other things I teach out of your playbook. We are all in this profession and in this country going to miss you very, very much. We will not see your like again soon. That's it, your bonus episode on the passing of Justice John Paul Stevens. He died on July 16th at the age of 99. I am David Harris. We're always here with you for a news bonus when the occasion comes. And I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com.